election regulation violations in Indonesia, climate reports from Singapore, and joint patrols in the South China Sea. All this and more in today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jaffet Kitsan, and today is January 11th, 2024. On today's show... 6,000 acres of coral reef have actually been destroyed by island building efforts in the South China Sea, and 75% of that damage has been done by China. Um, Alongside that, uh, giant clam harvesting, which has been attributed mainly to Chinese fishermen, has damaged an additional 16,000 acres of coral reef. That was Monica Sato, who chatted with Greg Poling, Alina Noor, and Harrison Prata about the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative's latest digital report, Deep Blue Scars. I'm really excited for that interview. Thanks for tuning in. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Tappy Lung in the studio. Tappy is our newest intern here with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Welcome. Hi, Jaffet. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be joining the team. We're excited to have you. So, tell me, was it your time as an international affairs major at George Washington that got you interested in Southeast Asia policy? Definitely. My family is from Malaysia, so I've always been interested in the region. But it was actually my exchange semester at the National University of Singapore that solidified for me that I love not only being in Southeast Asia, but studying it too. Oh, that's great. What was the best part of studying in the region? Since Singapore is such a small city-state, it was easy to see how much policy really impacted the day-to-day lives of people. Of course, it didn't hurt getting to do my readings at the beach. Ah, what I would do to be at the beach right now. It's rainy here in D.C. today, but maybe we can bring a bit of sunny Southeast Asia here, starting with our headlines. Let's do it. First, Indonesia's presidential race has been rife with accusations of campaign violations. Hmm, what kind of campaign violations? Anything serious? Jokowi's eldest son, Gibral Raka Booming Raka, vice presidential running mate to Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto, has been accused of handing out free milk to people at a public, car-free day event. Huh? How will handing out free milk impact the election? Will there be repercussions for the team? Probably not. These minor allegations won't likely lead to disqualification or punishment. Some voters are advocating for Indonesia's election supervisory board, or the Bawaslu, to take action. Okay, that makes sense. But Gibran isn't the only one in hot water ahead of Indonesia's election next month, is he? No. VP candidate Mahfud M. Day, running mate to former Central Java Governor Ganja Pranowo, and VP candidate Mahamin Iskandar, running mate to former Jakarta Governor Anis Baswedan, were a little too eager to start their campaigns. That they were, Tappy. The two VP candidates were reported to the Bawaslu for beginning their campaigns ahead of the designated campaigning period. Mahfud and Muaymin each recited Vote for Me poems in November before campaign season started. In December, the Bawaslu ruled that the poems didn't violate any campaign regulations after all. Wow, so much controversy surrounding this upcoming election. And apparently so much spilled milk. With less than a month to go until the Indonesian election, the race to replace President Jokowi is really starting to heat up. Speaking of things heating up, Singapore has rung in the new year with its third national climate change study, highlighting issues ranging from sweltering heat to damaging sea level rise. No, that's not good. What are the big takeaways? Kind of bleak. The study predicted a high possibility of unstable climate to come in Singapore if rates of carbon emissions stay high. And what would climate instability look like for Singapore and the rest of the region? Well, according to the report, we can anticipate a change in climate that could bring intense periods of rainfall, long dry spells, extreme temperatures, and sea level rise. With Singapore being a small island nation, the effects of climate change will be much more pronounced than with larger nations. Perhaps Singapore's Green Plan, which aims to get the country to net zero carbon emissions by 2050, will help to curb the effects of climate change before Singapore and its neighbors experience the brunt of the damage. Unfortunately, it looks like stormy seas are ahead not just for Singapore, but for its neighbors too. 
not necessarily with just climate change. Oh, are you referring to the Philippines and China's ongoing tensions over the South China Sea? Yeah, tensions continue to fester in the contested South China Sea after aggressive behavior from the Chinese Coast Guard and maritime militia through 2023. The Philippines has been working to improve its ability to respond to provocations. The Philippines is trying to get by with the help of its allies. Throughout 2023, it shored up its security pacts with the United States and explored further cooperation with Japan. On January 3rd, the Philippines ran a two-day joint patrol with the United States in the South China Sea. This mission comes after an initial joint patrol in November. The United States, a crucial ally to the Philippines, vowed to support the Philippines against Chinese aggression amid rising tensions between the two countries. With Manila's new allocated funding to a new permanent structure in the Second Thomas Shoal, tensions could take a turn for the worse. The new permanent structure in Second Thomas Shoal, an area of severe contention between the two nations, will serve as a shelter for Filipino soldiers, as well as to temporarily house fishermen through rough weather. With how difficult it's been to even send resupply missions to the Second Thomas Shoal, it's unclear how much of the structure can be built without Chinese interference on what Beijing claims to be its sovereign territory. China vowed that it has appropriate measures prepared in case of heightened tensions. For now, it continues its increased naval patrols throughout the South China Sea. Looks like there will be a continued tension for the foreseeable future that can only intensify. Well, we did see this coming, Jaffet. Filipino officials predicted that the joint patrol would irk China, which it certainly did. At least they're self-aware. Looks like we'll need to keep an eye on this. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Tappy, for stopping by. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Harrison and Monica, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio, the first issue of Southeast Asia Radio of 2024. I am Greg Poling with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joined as always by Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Hey, Alina. Hey, Greg. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Our guests today are going to be two fellow CSISers. We have Harrison Preta, who's fellow and deputy director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, and Monica Sato, who's a research associate with the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, or AMTI, because our program's name is too long. Hi, guys. Hey, everyone. Glad to be here. So we've got Harrison and Monica on to talk about a recent report that we put out, a digital report, big, fancy videos and infographics and whatnot, that went live like just days before the holidays here in the States. So I'm sure it's been sitting in inboxes for weeks, just waiting to be read. The title is Deep Blue Scars, Environmental Threats to the South China Sea. Uh, And this digital report was more than a year in the making a work of five authors. I am the fifth of five, so I am not going to lead this discussion. Uh, Harrison and Monica did most of the hard work, along with Tabitha Mallory and Hal Chen, who are with the China Ocean Institute uh, based in Seattle. And the goal was to provide a better count, I suppose, quantification of the amount of environmental damage done in the South China Sea over the last decade. So why don't I start by turning over to Monica, who had to do most of the number crunching and satellite image staring for like 12 straight months. Monica, what are the big takeaways of the report? After a really long time working on this report, we're happy to have released it. I guess the big takeaways from the report, a lot of what we did is really quantifying how much damage has been done to coral reefs in the South China Sea, at least on AMTI's side, since we had our partners, the China Ocean Institute, do most of the overfishing data analysis for that. Main report highlights are that 
About 6,000 acres of coral reef have actually been destroyed by island building efforts in the South China Sea, and 75% of that damage has been done by China. Um, alongside that, uh, giant clam harvesting, which has been attributed mainly to Chinese fishermen, has damaged an additional 16,000 acres of coral reef. You know, we got all of these analysis through looking at satellite imagery over about a period of 10 years since around 2011, actually, so beyond 10 years. So yeah, those are like the main report highlights. I would turn it over to Harrison to add anything I missed. We have those big three sections. And I think one of the things that, that might be surprising for listeners is to hear that the damage from giant clam harvesting is actually almost three times that of the island building. Because, you know, the clam harvesting doesn't involve Coast Guard boats and Navy boats bumping into each other. It hasn't been the focus of media coverage of events in the South China Sea for the last 10 years. So really only the South China Sea nerds will remember some of the previous publications about the giant clam harvesting and the damage it's done. But it's actually a huge source of damage to the reefs. The clam harvesting, for those unfamiliar, uh, the clams are harvested for their shells, which are kind of a substitute for elephant ivory in terms of a luxury natural material that's carved into statues and jewelry and sold on the black market. And so the harvesting of these clams actually involves using boat propellers to dig them up from the reef surfaces. And that creates damage not only where the digging was done, where it leaves permanent scarring on the reef, but it also creates huge sediment plumes, clouds of material that spreads out and chokes all the nearby marine life that can't essentially breathe and contact the water and live as it's supposed to. So uh, the giant clam harvesting is one effort that hasn't been tracked in detail for a number of years. So the extensive satellite imagery review here helped to put a more accurate figure on just how many acres of scarring there is. I don't follow it as closely as I did before, but I do remember how a few years ago the giant clam harvesting was a big issue. And as you mentioned, Harrison, it's sort of fallen off the radar. What kinds of regulations are we talking about that prevent or mitigate some of this damage? Are there any regulations? Are there laws that are supposed to be governing this type of activity? And are they being followed? Yes. So there, there are regulations in China against the harvesting and the sale of giant clam shells. It seems that these are not really enforced consistently. I forget the exact year. I think it was 2016 or 2015 that some new regulations were passed in the local Hainan provinces, the towns in Hainan province where the giant clam harvesting and the giant clam trade was most popular. But we saw instances on satellite imagery in 2018 and 2019 of Chinese boats harvesting giant clams in full view of the China Coast Guard at Scarborough Shoal, for example. So there's been regulations on the books, but when they've been enforced and how consistently they've been enforced has been the problem. We should note here that every species of giant clam is protected under uh, CITES, the UN Convention Against the Illegal Trade in Endangered Species. So these are both internationally protected species, and they are technically illegal to harvest and sell in China, although that does not seem to have stopped the practice. 
or even cause the China Coast Guard to pay much attention. I'd also note that this was included in the arbitral award the Philippines won in 2016, although at that time, the scale of the damage was not fully known. But it was one of these issues that the Philippines added into the case between the time they filed the original statement of claim in 2013 and when they put in the full memorial in 2014. And it was ruled by the arbitrators that one of the things China had done illegally was that the Coast Guard had shown no effort to prevent the illegal harvesting of endangered species. So one of the things I found really interesting about the report, apart from the graphics, which, I mean, I really like the flow of it. <laughs> it almost reads online like a children's book in the beginning with here's what's going on in the South China Sea and why it's so important. And here are the reefs and, and why uh, the species of fish are so important. And then it goes into the problems, right? But you cover basically reef damage as well as illegal fishing, which I'm sure we'll get into later. How much of what you've pulled out, no pun intended, in your report is directly attributed to man-made activity and how much of it can be attributed to climate change? Presumably, climate change has made these reefs much more vulnerable to human damage. But is there a way to segregate the damage from one type of activity, which is also man-made at sea, you know, the climate crisis, with what's urgently going on at sea. Our report focused specifically on human activity and and specifically actually state-supported activity in the South China Sea. So the rising sea levels, rising sea temperatures, elements of climate change are certainly having an impact on the South China Sea. But the activities that we tracked were ones that were either directly done by the governments of the littoral states of the South China Sea in in the case of dredging and land reclamation, or indirectly supported or allowed in terms of the illegal clam harvesting and and overfishing industrial fishing efforts. There's certainly more to the picture, and there are more threats to the South China Sea than the ones we identified. We focus specifically on the ones that humans are causing and that, you know, frankly, could be changed with different priorities for the people involved. When framing out this report, we did have a lot of discussion early on about how we would cover things like runoff pollution, coral bleaching from ocean acidification. And unfortunately, we had to come to, I think, a somewhat unsatisfactory answer, which is that we tuck this in with a lot of the overfishing discussion as things that we can't properly study because of the effect of the disputes, the need for joint environmental management, marine conservation, marine scientific research is enormous in the South China Sea. It's the most biodiverse fishery on the planet, has the highest level of coral species diversity on the planet, and yet is terribly understudied compared to most other ocean ecosystems on the planet, precisely because of these disputes. So we can do some very kind of gross estimations of total fish catch, which we do. Well, really, we borrow from the Seas Around Us project at the University of British Columbia. And we can do a reasonably accurate count of shallow reef destruction from dredging landfill and clam harvesting because it's visible from satellite. But even the full extent of that damage, we can't really say because we can't do on-site surveys and neither can anybody else because of the nature of the geopolitical dispute. Why don't we maybe baseline for the audience why clam harvesting is so damaging, because I don't think that that is immediately clear to folks. Monica, 
why don't I ask you, can you explain a little bit how are clams harvested and what makes that activity so uniquely destructive compared to all the other myriad fishing activity that goes on in the South China Sea? Sure. And I think we framed the report in such a way that the damage is kind of twofold when we talk about giant clam harvesting. As you mentioned, Greg, giant clams are already endangered or at least vulnerable, classified as vulnerable. So harvesting them of itself is already damaging to the marine environment because you take away a very vital part of the marine ecosystem. But what's more damaging, and Harrison alluded to it a little bit a while ago, was that the method by which Chinese fishermen harvest these giant clams really digs into the coral reef and it harvests not only live clams, but also dead clams as well. And as I've studied all the satellite imagery, you can really see the effects of these propellers that dig in to the reef from an image. It's really shocking and kind of devastating to see how much of it can be seen from that level. And I think what's also interesting is what some, at least for some features, especially the bigger ones, and this was a kind of a hard part to quantify during the study is whether we count this reef as destroyed by giant clam harvesting or by island building is that a lot of features that already have that China has built features on are also destroyed by giant clam harvesting. So it's like a double whammy, so to say, like features like Subi Reef and Mischief Reef, like prior to China building all these features on it have already been destroyed by giant clam harvesting in the first place. There's imagery of, I'm thinking of a picture of Fiery Cross Reef. Basically, in the months before they started dredging for the huge outpost that they built there, the entire reef was covered with the clam scarring marks. So essentially, it seems as if they were invited to, let's get the clams out first before we destroy the reef anyway by building this military base. Yeah, this is, I think, one of the things that leads us to define clam harvesting as state-sanctioned in a way that we don't define all fish in state-sanctioned, right? Because when, you know, if you say, I'm going to knock down this building, and suddenly the building's looted a week before the demolition, that's pretty suspicious. The fact that every reef China was about to build on was stripped bare under the eyes of the Coast Guard immediately before the dredging began is highly suspicious. China's not the only player, right? Not just in giant clam harvesting but also in, in dredging more widely. And you name another player in your report, which is Vietnam. We're back to, well, you know, Vietnam's activities are not as massive in scale and speed as, as China's. But it seems as though there's almost, I wouldn't say a competition, but the damage that's been caused by activities by Vietnam seem pretty significant and substantial as well. Why aren't we talking more about this? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. Vietnam had always been, since the China's reclamation in 2013, 2016, Vietnam had always been the claimant who had done the second most, but it was very far from China. It was a different order of magnitude. And so, you know, it wasn't really comparable, though it was compared even then. But in the last couple of years, they have really expanded their activities. And now it's, it's to the point where China's done 4,600 acres of dredging and landfill. And Vietnam is, has done 1,500 or 1,600. So roughly one third of what China has done. It's not 
equal, but it's, it's approaching the same scale and it's not done. They're continuing to, to reclaim land and some features that just last year only had a few dozen acres reclaimed. This year, suddenly 200 plus acres of new land have been made. So Vietnam certainly has expanded ex- activities. And I think there's a question of, you know, at what point will it actually get noticed? Because China, the scale of China's activities was so large, I think they've been able to kind of hide in the shadow of that to some extent. But, but at some point, other claimants, other international observers are going to have to acknowledge that environmental protection in the South China Sea is not a China problem. It's a everybody problem. China is a big portion of it, but everybody's going to have to play their part if this area is going to be managed responsibly. And I think another important thing to note, and we did a feature, AMTI did a feature on it recently, is that Vietnam's methods are also changing and expanding. We noted in our report as well that, so Vietnam used to only use these clamshell dredgers or construction equipment to fill up some areas of their occupied posts. But now they've also turned to the cutter suction dredging like China, which we highlight is very detrimental to the environment. It's actually probably the most detrimental thing for the coral reefs because it not only kills nearby marine life through the sediment that Harrison was talking about earlier, but it also overwhelms the coral reef's capacity to repair itself. So effectively, these corals are dead permanently and will not be able to uh, revive itself. So it's just something that we need to keep claimant states kind of accountable for, especially with the expansion of methods. I think we all have to strike a careful balance here. It is, I think, irresponsible of anybody to talk about dredging in the South China Sea and only talk about China. I think even if you want to avoid talking about Vietnam's work, that just plays into Chinese narrative. So we see particularly in the Philippines, for instance, where we've clearly had a concerted information campaign over the last year playing out in the Philippines, originating from China, arguing that Vietnam's a real problem. So if you if you don't talk about what Vietnam's doing at all, you merely lend yourself to, you know, you help trolls make their case online. It is true that Vietnam has done now 25% or so of the dredging and landfill in the South China Sea, and that its methods are looking a lot more like China's than, than they used to. I think you can acknowledge that. You can also then turn around and say, okay, but the dredging and landfill actually only accounts for about, what, one-fifth of the total known damage to the reefs. The rest is from clamming, and only China has conducted the clamming. So of the 20-some thousand acres of coral reef that we identify as being damaged, Vietnam only did 1,500 of that. And that's only what we know. One of the arguments that we make in in the report, and I think the thing that's going to come to light more and more as the Philippines in particular does more on-site surveys, is that the real numbers of reef damage from clam harvesting is probably multiples higher than what we have here, because we can only talk about what was done on the shallow reef surfaces that we can see from satellite. And we know from on-site imagery, from Scarborough Shoal, from Sabina Shoal, from Iroquois Reef, that there's been significant damage in the deeper lagoons that can only be identified on-site. Our estimates are that this, just at those three shoals, I think could easily crack 60,000 acres which is three times everything we've documented today. 
you know, I don't think we should let Vietnam off the hook, but I also think that we should be careful not to say that Hanoi and Beijing are equally culpable for environmental damage here. They're not. I would also argue that the reason fundamentally that there is not any efforts for joint scientific research and joint conservation and joint fisheries management in the South China Sea are China's. China's decision to pursue illegal and excessive claims to historic rights throughout the South China Sea and block all efforts at coordination is why nobody knows the full extent of the environmental damage in the South China Sea. Vietnam has proven willing several times over the years to work with other partners, including the Philippines, on joint environmental studies. China has been unwilling to do that. I'd like to touch a little bit on the IEU fishing part of your report. There was a really interesting study that just came out, actually, and was reported in Nature magazine about, you might have seen this, about how dark vessels, those without AIS transponders, account for a lot of the industrial fishing activity that is destroying large fish stocks, particularly in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Africa. IU fishing numbers that we probably have are very likely underreported. The figures that you have in your report are probably uh, just an estimation, a microcosm of the real damage to fishing stocks in the region. I wonder if you could expand a little on that section of your report. Absolutely. So you're right that tracking IUU fishing and even tracking legal fishing is actually surprisingly difficult. The statistics, the data that's available, the official reported catch numbers are almost always just a fraction of the real activity that's going on. So the data that we use for this project comes from the sea around us project at the uh, University of British Columbia. And what's so interesting about their work and the reason that it's so useful is that they've taken the official national reported catch data, and then they have gone back and done reconstructive research into other archives, other sources about uh, local fishing activities, specific fishing for certain species, fishing gears and the types of uh, equipment used by each nation. And so they've gone back and combined a multitude of different data sets to essentially reconstruct a much more accurate and robust estimate for each country's uh, fish catch. And not only how much fish, but where were they caught, what type of species in each location, based also on, on studies of where, where certain fish live. And so this kind of combining of many, many different data layers has resulted in estimates that are still estimates. They're projections. It's reconstructed data. But in all likelihood, they are much more accurate than the official reported numbers. But because of that difficulty, we did approach this as a study of overfishing and not specifically IUU fishing, because when it comes to the data, it's really difficult to distinguish those two types. And then especially in the South China Sea, because of the disputed nature of things, you know, the exact definition of IUU fishing is not that clear and certainly not agreed upon by everyone involved. But nevertheless, that data, what it has shown is that since the late 90s, the South China Sea has been stagnant as a producer of fish. 
the fish catch since the 90s has not really grown in the way that it had before. And it's because it's overexploited. The rise of industrial fishing, first from China and then from Vietnam, led to huge increases in the number of fish caught from the 1950s through the end of the century. But since then, it's been stagnant. And unfortunately, a lot of that fishing has been done by destructive fishing methods, especially bottom trawling. It's the number one dominant method used by both China and Vietnam industrial fishing. They essentially drag a large net across the ocean floor that is catching not only the species they want, but anything else that happens to be there, including endangered species, turtles, mammals, other stuff that when it gets caught, it, it almost always ends up getting killed. So it's you know just a straight ecological loss. And then the gear itself is also damaging the ocean floor as it's dragged along and, and damaging species that dwell there. So the estimating the amount of damage is a difficult process and, and getting more details on this, as Greg said, is going to require actual collaboration, actual scientific studies, more localized data that can give us information on specific areas in the South China Sea. But for now, this type of uh, reconstructed data is really the best way currently of getting a picture of just how much damage has been done. And Lena said that the report starts off reading like a children's book. And I gotta say, so it's a pretty horrifying children's book by the end. What a bummer. No, you know what? I, I love the uh, the layout and the illustrations. And so it starts out like all nice and stuff, but you're right. So towards the end, I was looking for really concrete recommendations. And maybe that's going to come in your next iteration of the report. But basically, you left it in a fairly hopeful place, not exactly a dark, uh, dim outlook. You know, you talk about how we need to cooperate. Uh, but I'd love to hear some suggestions from you guys, if you have any, on how we move forward, given the environmental destruction that's taking place. Well, I'll start off. I mean, I, I do think this is my transparency side kicking in here. I do think step one is just understanding the South China Sea as an environmental treasure that is at stake here. It's under threat because we so often look at the South China Sea as a geopolitical issue. And so do all the governments in the region. They're thinking about their priorities in this arena. We've seen, obviously, a lot of the claimants. Step one is build a military base that I can defend. Step two is worry about, you know, how much coral reef I've just destroyed by doing that. Sorry, it's not step two. That's like step 95. I think it's important to first recognize that it's under threat. Something needs to change or it's going to go away. And there's real consequences here. Thousands of people rely on the South China Sea for their jobs. The surrounding countries are huge consumers of sea protein. It's a food security issue. It's an economic issue. There's real stuff at stake here. And if practices are not changed, it's going to be worse and worse until it can't be saved. Yeah. And I also think our report kind of serves as a springboard for future research. There's still so much that we don't know, especially like the extent of actual damage on these features on these reefs. And so we're hoping that people read a report, they'll understand that it's an issue that needs to be addressed immediately. And that's also why, as part of the report, we're going in region to talk to stakeholders and 
relevant organizations to report to them our findings. And hopefully that will start something within local governments and local organizations for this issue to actually be addressed. As a coincidence of timing, as we were getting to the finish line of the report, the Philippine government started mooting the idea of filing a second arbitration case against China. This was a result of the Philippine Coast Guard finding the scale of the damage to the reef environment at Iroquois Reef and Sabina Shoal. And it seems likely, I mean, at least I would guess 50-50, the Philippines does decide to file a second arbitration case focused only on environmental issues, focused only on damage from dredging and uh, clam harvesting, which, as we learned from the first arbitration case, won't make Beijing say, oopsie, you caught us. But it will, I think, shine a light on this issue and maybe put some pressure on all the claimants and hopefully even Beijing to both dial back on destructive practices and seek modes of of cooperation. This is a long-term problem. Anybody looking for short-term solutions, uh, I don't think we have an offer, but pretending it's not happening isn't going to help anybody. I think the point about changing mindsets and framing the South China Sea issue as, first of all, environmental and ecological one rather than a geopolitical contestation is going to take a lot because that's how most countries see it and it's in their interest to do so. So I'd love for you guys to suggest concrete steps in order to change that mindset because otherwise, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. And six, ten years from now, you're probably going to produce another report about how much more damage has taken place. On that hopeful note, <laughs> look forward to your to your next report, I guess. Thanks, Alina. Why don't we wrap it there? This is the first episode of Southeast Asia Radio of 2024 in the can. We're very thankful to all of you for continuing to listen. Thanks to Alina for helping steer this ship and to Monica and Harrison for joining us today. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Corey Donnelly and Tappy Long. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Jaffet Gitsan. And I'm Tappy Long. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.